Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Carrie, Part 3, Wreckage, as well as share our final thoughts on the novel. Let's start the show. In a short conclusion, we see the impact of Carrie's actions on the town of Chamberlain. Mass funerals, industries going under, survivors wrestling with guilt, and the inevitable end of the town. Years later, there are still arguments among government officials, scientists, and outside observers about whether Carrie's telekinesis powers were real or not. Finally, nine years after the events of prom night, we are told of a two-year-old in Tennessee who is able to move marbles with her mind, similar to mental feats her grandmother performed before her heart gave out. The toddler's mother is sure that she'll be a world beater someday. Spot on Tennessee accent, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) She'll be a world beater someday. Jade, this is a very short sort of epilogue to the book. And it's structured like much of the rest of the book was with these little vignettes Mm -hmm. from a variety of of different things. And I didn't think it actually worked very well compared to the rest of the novel. I agree. I didn't really like that element of the novel all the way through. I think maybe King could have dialed that back a little bit or eliminated it altogether. We did talk about that in previous episodes. So this conclusion is nothing but that and so it's like in my opinion the weakest part of the novel through and through and therefore it left a little bit to be desired in in my opinion yeah the the big thing was that it sort of made little sense the primary driving piece of the epilogue is this back and forth between different people whether it be the government reports or eyewitnesses to the events or or things that happened afterwards about whether or not Carrie has powers or not and what that means in the long run. And we as a reader know she has powers. Yeah. We've been inside her mind seeing what she knows, seeing how she flexes her power, how she builds it up when she actually does the attacks. Like we know that those powers exist and they're not real. So to read about people arguing about, oh, did she have powers or not? Was there another culprit or or something else. It's like, yeah, but we know. So there's no mystery here. And it just sort of seems like talking for no reason. And to put that in the book just doesn't make sense to me. Exactly. It might have been a more interesting way to conclude a book where we never got Carrie's perspective. And all of this was based on various people's observations, which were never fully complete. And we had to, we were sort of doing some, some arithmetic to get to a potential truth. Yeah. And this was just one more element in that equation. But as you said, we knew for sure our experiences came through either a omniscient narrator and omniscient means knows everything <laughs> and so therefore so do we or Carrie herself. Yeah. Among others. So there's no question about that. So it felt like there was a challenge put to something that we knew to be true. 
another thing that didn't really work was like, oh, look, there's another person with telekinesis. It sort of felt like, well, that's a foregone conclusion. There is enough of the scientific stuff throughout the book that says, statistically speaking, this will certainly happen again. So I don't know that we necessarily needed a discrete example of here it is happening again. Uh, it was nice to know that somebody with Carrie's powers, unchecked, with nothing but bad things on their mind, could potentially destroy the whole world, right? And that's a scary thought. But we also know that there will certainly be people with Carrie's powers because eventually the right combination of genetic uh, traits or, and DNA combinations will happen. And there you go. So it, I, I don't feel like we gained anything with that story. Well, I think what King may have been going for here is some sort of final jump scare. Like, hi, you thought the threat was over, but look, there's another one over here. And that's an awful long way to go for a jump scare that's not really scary. It's more theoretical, like, oh, this girl that's only two, maybe in 12 years when she becomes a young woman, then we'll have to be worried about her. So it doesn't have that visceral scare that a lot of horror movies do, where there's one last scene where a knife comes out or the bad guy rises up from the dead or the Terminator's got one more bit of life in him or spoiler alert, something happens in the Carrie movie that is a final beat. It was an awful long way to go for a final jump scare that just wasn't scary. Especially when you factor in Carrie's specific upbringing. Mm. She was a terribly abused person. So the fact that she connected with the world in the way she did and that she had this this vengeful mind that eventually resulted in the destruction that we all witnessed well that's not a foregone conclusion maybe this young girl in tennessee is going to be surrounded by love yep and have a wonderful young life and she won't be surprised in the girl's locker room that <laughs> you know women have periods and that this is part of normal biological functions and among a thousand other life experiences that could be much more positive. So maybe she'll have the same powers as Carrie, but she'll just be an all-around like good person with a well-rounded personality and a good outlook on life. And she can go around helping build buildings like I suggested in the last episode. <laughs> Counterpoint, King makes a point of saying she's growing up in Tennessee. I kid, I kid. Tennessee's a wonderful state. Definitely in the top 50. Yeah. And the home of Dolly Parton, who is probably one of the best things this country has ever offered. So maybe she'll yes. grow up to be Dolly Parton. Imagine if Dolly Parton had telekinesis. I mean, I'm not convinced she doesn't. There you go. <laughs> maybe this girl is Dolly Parton. I mean, ultimately, I don't think this extra se section is necessary. There's probably a way of wrapping up the book, maybe with Sue Snell getting a little piece of her autobiography in there to talk about how she felt, but I, I don't know if this actually adds to the book in any way, these last 10 pages or so. I agree. However, I think the writing in the end was good. Yes, I would agree with that. So whereas we were just talking about the structure being flawed, the, the actual writing was good. I think King had so much fun writing 
this wide variety of content types and styles. Yeah, I, I had read in an interview, and I might have mentioned this on one of the other episodes about this book, that King wasn't all that happy with this book. But one of the things he did to entertain himself was these different writing styles. So he got to write like an academic, or he got to write like a somebody writing an autobiography, or somebody writing pseudoscience, or somebody writing a newspaper article. And in these 10 pages, he does like four or five or six of these things where he just seems to be having fun. And it starts off with like this, what looks to be like a found autopsy report. Like it's an mm -hmm. actual, I, I was sort of stunned when I turned the next page on my Kindle and here's a picture of a, a doctor's medical report that, that he wrote up for, for Carrie. And you're like, oh yeah, that's sort of cool. Yeah. King may actually have like went to a nearby hospital and asked for a blank autopsy report and then just took it home and chick, 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 chick. look at that. Carrie's dead. And then there's this teletype AP story about Carrie's brain structure and how scientists have found out like due to this and that and this scientific reason that looks like some of her brain is enlarged and that might be where the telekinesis came from. And It's the dead zone, Sean. Oh yeah, that is the dead zone. It was much more scientific than that though. Not only does he have this autopsy report, but he's got like an actual, what looks like a teletype feed that would come over the the actual wire that the newspaper would then write up into a story about Carrie's brain structure that gets into the details. Yeah. Even the fact that he did it as a teletype feed versus just a newspaper clipping, it, he's like yet another layer of, ah, what, how else could I convey this information that's not just me doing a narrative? Yeah. And it's cool. And it matches with the rest of what he'd been doing all along in the book. And included in this is the letter from Tennessee about the infant with the floating marbles yep. in t Tennessee. So that worked nicely because King was writing in the voice of this family member in Tennessee and introduced just enough grammatical errors and spelling errors to make it seem like somebody whose forte was not writing right but it was still like a deft touch like it wasn't offensive or stereotypical or or anything like that it's just like okay there's some misspellings and things but it makes it feel like you're reading a real person's letter that they just wrote to a friend yes not i am an english major and i will i will have this perfect and it's ready for publication in the newspaper i thought the pseudo newspaper article about sort of the death of the town of Chamberlain that was written months after the events of prom night was well done. Like King could have done like soft focus magazine articles in another life. He sort of got like all the quotes, right? Like, Oh, here's what a reporter would do. They'd go and find a couple of people on the street and have this eye for detail that would come out in like a, a Newsweek or a time or a Yankee magazine even. How do you think he got the gig at Entertainment Weekly, Sean? Oh, yeah, fair enough. And then this last one is King really just sort of having fun. He has a a small entry from a dictionary of slang in which one of the entries is to rip off a carry, which is slang for what the teenagers are saying about when when somebody sort of goes nuts. And it reminded me of like, it would be Urban Dictionary nowadays, right? Where you have these mm -hmm. like things. And to be fair, I don't know if, to rip off a carry sounds like something a young kid would say. Like, I don't know. It doesn't have, I guess we have like going postal, but I, to rip off a carry or it would be to be like, to go off like carry to. I would say to, to pull a carry. To pull a carry. Yeah. Yeah. But you could tell King does seem to be having fun here. And 
showing off his writing prowess in his first book. I'm surprised he didn't try to write a short poem, like a haiku. <laughs> a haiku about Carrie. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a fairly short section. I can't imagine that there was any Dark Tower thinnies here, were there? Surprise, 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 Sean. I managed to find one or two. How about you? Yeah, me too. We're we're made for this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'll start us off. From Kerry's autopsy report, we learned that Sue Snell lives at 19 Back Chamberlain Road. Yeah, she's at number 19. <laughs> we can't skip that thinny, can we? No, that one's a real one. My two are very circumstantial. There is a note, uh, I think this is in one of the government reports, they mentioned September 7th, page three. And if you add the month September, which is nine, the number seven, and the number three, you get 19. I think that is convoluted enough to count. <laughs> this one might be a little bit better. So prom night happened on May 27th, and Carrie's destruction continued on into the morning of the 28th. And if you add up Two, seven, two, eight, those numbers equal 19. I got to hand it to you. <laughs> that works for me too. I don't know if our listeners agree, but I, I think that counts. All right. How about yucking it up? Well, unlike the thinnies, I was not really grossed out by anything in this section, Sean. Uh, it was very short, and there really wasn't anything overly descriptive except uh, a letter about another person with telekinesis and an autopsy report. So I imagine those probably tend to be kind of dry. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I had nothing else for yucking it up either. Sorry, folks. No, nothing, nothing gross here. Nope. All right. Well, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons for continuing to support the show. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. We'll be covering the movie Carrie shortly. So uh, look for that on the bonus podcast feed that you can listen to by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Jay, I also wanted to thank our Twitter followers. We haven't thanked them for a while. I want to especially thank Kelly Wilkinson. She was responding to somebody who was starting their journey on the Dark Tower. And Ooh. Kelly said, if you have an interest in podcasts, I would highly recommend Two Guys Dark Tower for Dark Tower content. And I reached out and said, hey, thanks for the recommendation. And she went on to say that she had only recently gotten into podcasts and have worked my way through yours quite fast. And I had said, don't judge us on the first ones, whoever listens to it. Because, you know, we've gotten better. I like to think we've gotten better over time, Jay. Yeah, of course. And she said, you can hear the confidence and ease growing as you both go on. A pleasure to listen to. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. That uh, brightened my day. One of the few things on Twitter that did. Yeah, Twitter tends to be the uh, the, the pathway to, to doom and destruction. So, yes, yeah, so, it's a nice, bright uh, bright moments there from Kelly Wilkinson. Jay, as we like to do at the end of the book, we look for some contemporaneous reviews to see what people were saying about the book when it was published. And I was able to find some, despite this being King's first book, it did get some write-ups. The first one is from Booklist. And the critic says, interspersed with Carrie's narrative are passages effectively mimicking recent efforts of parapsychological research. But the humor is short-lived 
and the novel as a whole requires a willing suspension of belief and taste. A suspension of belief, yeah, the girl's got telekinesis, but a suspension of taste? I don't think that this was a distasteful novel. Although this does kind of flip the script a little bit on my main criticism of this book and that it is because I wasn't reading this at the time that it was published. Mm. I wasn't living in this world that King was trying to fit the novel into yes. and that it was recent contemporaneous efforts of the parapsychological like obsessions that folks had. You've talked about that a little bit, but you know, I'm just not personally aware of it. Right. So maybe if I were reading the the first edition of Carrie hot off the the printing press, I would be aware of that like everybody's talking about ESP and telekinesis and stuff like that and maybe somebody really does have it. Let's just keep testing. Yeah. Let's let's bend the spoon, Neo, and uh, <laughs> you're Geller like. <laughs> Uh, so I would say like that's almost a, a, a rationale to have it, to include it. It actually, it's it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. Looking at it all these years later, it sort of feels unnecessary. This review is from Kirkus. Chamberlain, Maine, where stones fly from the sky rather than from the hands of the villagers as they did in the lottery, although the latter are equal to other forms of persecution. King handles his first novel with considerable accomplishment and very little hokum. It's only too easy to believe that these youngsters who once ate peanut butter now scrawl Carrie White eat shit. But as they say around here, sit a spell and collect yourself. I like how this person immediately picks up on Shirley Jackson's influence on King. Yeah. And and gets it right away. Like, yep, considerable accomplishment and very little hokum. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. It just had like a, a sousant of hokum. <laughs> just enough. And then I thought it was interesting. Um, the New York Times reviewed Carrie. I don't know if it got reviewed in the hardcover or paperback, and it was originally reviewed by their crime novel critic. So this was not sort of a literary review, but a crime novel review. And the Times says, maybe, strictly speaking, it is not a mystery book, but it does have action, suspense, and at the end, a holocaust. And it is exceedingly well written, so don't miss Carrie by Stephen King, a first novel and one guaranteed to give you a chill. King does more than tell a story. He's a schoolteacher himself, and he gets into Carrie's mind, as well as into the minds of her classmates. He also knows a thing or two about symbolism, blood symbolism especially. That this is a first novel is amazing. King writes with the kind of surety normally associated only with veteran writers. The mixture of science fiction, the occult, secondary school sociology, kids good and bad, and genetics turns out to be an extraordinary mixture. Wow, oh, that is a remarkably glowing review and i don't disagree with much of it except that i know that king is going to go on to get even better yeah like he started this strong and it only went uphill yeah no i i agree and uh it was nice to see that a pretty well respected publication like the times recognized it right from the beginning i'm sure that helped sell a couple of those 400,000 uh paperbacks that were out there or no a million paperbacks million. yeah, yeah. $400,000 for king this book has been read by many people goodreads gives it 3.98 stars overall and it has 655,000 reviews on goodreads site which is just crazy i did not read any of the 655,000 but they're out there uh library thing a little bit less 3.73 stars jay what are your final thoughts on carry the novel uh, to sum up, 
this was a good book, despite its flaws. I thought it was a little too long, a little messy, but a great story. Yeah, I liked it a lot too. I think I liked maybe the story more than the actual final product of the book. I think if this had been written as a novella and maybe included as like the longish first story in a collection of short stories, I think I would have liked it even better. But as a standalone book, I'm not sure if it works quite as well. However, it's a good story and uh, it really sets up King for his long career. Yeah. Just enough hokum to make it work. Just enough. Let's do a couple of pieces of fun stuff here. I just wanted to call out the fact that one of the graffiti messages that we're recluding on at the end of the book is that Carrie White is burning for her sins. Also, Jesus never fails. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting that this book, which is, it kind of goes back and forth a little bit about, is it a critique on religious fundamentalism or is it just about an abused girl who happens to have telekinesis? Or is it maybe both? I don't know. That at this point in the story, this, the dangerous fundamentalism continues. The, the same people who rejected Carrie and rejected Carrie's mother and made them you know, societal outcasts for their religious fundamentalism are turning right back to it and using it as the crutch of a way to be cruel to Carrie even after she's died. Mm. Yep. I wanted to mention the author of the article that's cited in the end here. This is the article on telekinesis. It is written by somebody named MacGuffin, a literal MacGuffin in this book. Uh, MacGuffin is the term that I think Alfred Hitchcock came up with to talk about just sort of the, the thing that drives the plot whether that be the Maltese Falcon or the Infinity Stones or whatever, right? Like there's something that doesn't really make a difference what it is, but it's a MacGuffin to get the story rolling. And I'm like, oh, here we've got a literal MacGuffin right here in the book. I thought Thanos' chin was the MacGuffin. Oh, okay. Is that what started it off? Yes. <laughs> I always like to find or think about how King might have come up with certain, of his, uh, certain character names. Mm. So I just wanted to call out that uh, towards the end of the book, when we're getting this wrap up of what happened to Chamberlain and, and the townsfolk after Carrie's destructive episode of prom night, the character who is interviewed about what his plans are for his future is basically explaining that he's getting out of town. He's going to sell his house at a loss. He's going to move away. This, this town is done. I'm out of here. And his last name is Furon. Ah. As in, I am scared. I like it. I, I did not pick up on that, but that's that's a good one. I am going to turn our last fun stuff over to one of our loyal listeners, Shauna, who emailed us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com and said, Hey guys, I just happened to read The Haunting of Hill House right before reading Carrie. I was struck by the falling of the stones on the house, which happens to Eleanor from Haunting of Hill House and in Carrie. And did you notice that Eleanor's sister in that book is named Carrie? Another nod to Shirley Jackson. Oh, that's a pretty astute observation there, Shauna. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, very good. And thanks for the email. We appreciate it. And thanks for listening. And the rest of our listeners, if you want to contribute the way that Shauna did, send us your email at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. 
All right. I think it's time for some other worlds than these, Jay. Start us off. All right. I am currently watching season two of Perry Mason on HBO. Season one was a masterpiece, and I am really digging the fact that it's back on the air. It's been it's been a long wait. COVID had a pretty big impact on their production yeah. cycle, but nearly three years later, season two is out now. It's just as good as it was before. Agreed. I am enjoying it as well. Obviously, I'm a big uh, Matthew Reese fan from The Americans, which was one of my Same. favorite shows from uh, a few years back. He's fantastic. His partner at the law firm, played by Juliet Rylance, is also a fantastic actress. And then she's so good. All the supporting actors and actresses on the show are great. I'm I'm really enjoying it and looking forward to seeing what it is. One thing I want to call out that maybe isn't the thing that normally gets called out on these types of things is the score. The show takes place during the Great Depression, right? It's it takes place in the 30s. It's got this jazz score. It's not a jazz score you would have heard in the 30s. It's a more modern jazz score, but it plays so well to this feeling of like oppression and just how bad things are, but this sort of like neo-noir thing happening as well, even though it's not neo, it's it's taking place in the 30s. It's just this like simple score that just works really well. So yeah, I'm loving Perry Mason. Yeah, I'll call out one other aspect of it, and that is the fact that it takes place in LA. And <clears throat> I've never been to LA, but it's been the centerpiece of so many shows and movies that I kind of feel like I know a fictionalized version of LA and I've seen it in so many time periods. So it's fun to see LA represented in the thirties because I'm also, as I mentioned last episode, watching Columbo Mm. and that takes place in LA and that's in the seventies. So it's like I switch between uh, Perry Mason and Columbo and I'm, (laughs) I'm getting like LA, 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 LA. And it's, it's really cool. And uh, it's, um, it's just fun to see, it's a very famous town, and in some ways it's changed not at all, and in some ways it's changed in every way possible. Yeah, and I think one of the things they're getting through in this season is that as big, as important as LA is, in the 30s, it was still seen as a backwater to yeah, a lot of the rest yeah. of the country. And they're, everything you associate with LA, really, really rich people who are doing well and very glamorous and rich, and then there's very poor people and the underbelly of society who are living in in Hoovervilles. And yet, even the people who are doing well in Los Angeles still have this sense that they are uh, looked down on by the rest of the country and have mm-hmm. something to prove, which is not something you would think of nowadays. People in LA probably no. think they're the center of the universe. But here people are like, no, we're LA, but we've got a we're the underdogs fighting for something. And that plays in well, especially with Perry Mason, who's a literal underdog and throughout this uh, whole show. He's barely a lawyer at this point. Yeah, just a fantastic show. Well shot, just really well written, all that. What are you watching or, or, or into these days, Sean? In addition to Perry Mason, I'm also watching on HBO, or I've actually watched the entire season of The Last of Us with mm-hmm. Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey in a post-apocalyptic United States road story after a 
fungal infection has um, really done a number on the states and, and, and really killed off the majority of the population. And there is a secret that may be in the hands of Bella Ramsey's character that Pedro Pascal uh, needs to transport her across the country. And I'm just going to sort of leave it there because there's more I'd love to say about it, but I don't want to say anything more and ruin anybody's view on it. But again, well acted, well shot, not your typical zombie post-apocalyptic show, I don't think, and by any means. And what might surprise our listeners, being the Stephen King fan that I am, I usually do not watch scary shows or movies like this. I just can't uh, handle them. But I am like forcing myself to watch this show because I recognize how good it is. And the one and a half episodes that I've watched (laughs) are amazingly good. Like this is fantastic TV. But I keep having to stop like, like, oh, the suspense is just getting (laughs) it's just too too much, too much. I got to turn it off and just come back like freshly energized and ready to to handle that. The shadows are getting longer and something's about to pop out of them i guess and i i just it's either that or fast forward to the next scene and i don't want to do that no i think uh, you need to watch it i somehow my wife was out of town for like four days and i was able to get through the whole season in in a, in a week and uh it might have been a pretty intense week and i might have had some bad dreams at the end of it but uh again it was it, it it's it's well worth watching if you have any sort of interest in it and again you get to see Pedro Pascal's face, which is nice after watching three seasons of Mandalorian and not TV's dad now. And everything that he's been doing lately has just been pure gold. Yeah, the movie he did with Nicolas Cage recently was fantastic. And it was it was a really fun Nicolas Cage performance. But Pedro Pascal played this, this super movie geek guy in a scenario that you would never expect to find one. And so he was kind of like. I'm guessing it was a little bit of himself as mm. this character. Like, I bet that Pedro Pascal is a movie geek. Like, he could just sit down and talk to you about his favorite movies for 12 hours. Yeah. And so that's basically what this movie is about. He gets to hang out with Nicolas Cage, one of his favorite movie stars, <laughs> and geek out about movies. It's, uh, it's, it's really fun. Yeah, and I don't think they shared any scenes, but... Peter Pascal and Bella Ramsey, both Game of Thrones alum. That's right. Bella Ramsey is fantastic in this. I, you know, she stole some scenes in Game of Thrones. Bella Ramsey played the Lady of Bear Island related to the Mormonts. Uh, both Jorah, who ends up working with Daenerys, right? And mm-hmm. then also the Grand Commander at the Wall. Right, right. Yeah. And she's had like a couple of pretty, um, scene stealing uh performances in that show she didn't have a very big part at all uh in the last of us she's like the main character along with peter pascal and she is really fantastic um speaking with a very credible american accent yeah yeah good stuff so again hbo max if really just sponsor us at this point like we're watching all your stuff (laughs) we enjoy all of it uh that's our other worlds in these So that'll be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. And uh, thanks to uh, HBO. (laughs) Yes. And thanks to Sean and Kelly for saying nice things about us on Twitter and email. 
Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Jay, next episode, we're going to be covering the talisman, part A one. What? Well, how did you phrase this? We are, we are what now? We are finding our way back onto the beam. Oh, I like it. Yeah. That's so right. um, just to note, our patrons got to vote for which direction we are taking the podcast in next. And they voted for the talisman, which we are looking forward to read. Not only Stephen King, Peter Straub co-wrote the talisman. So. Is it Straub or Straub? Uh, You're probably saying it right, but I, I've i said Straub in my head all these years and probably have it wrong. I think I'm saying Straub like Rusty Straub, the baseball player from the 80s. Never heard of him. Sure. <laughs> Got it. Anyways. Do you pronounce Rusty Straub or Straub? I pronounce it Peter. <laughs> <laughs> that book written by Stephen King and the other guy. The Englishman. Is he English? I think so. Oh, God. I didn't know that before we were going to read it. (laughs) (laughs) That changes everything. He's just going to mangle the language, yes. I guess it's Peter Straub, then. Yes, that's it. it. (laughs) Very well, very well. Uh, The Talisman, part one, coming up next episode. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I might be wrong about that. <laughs> is is Peter? <laughs> ah, great. Ah, uh, English. It's <laughs> the first Google suggestion is is Peter Straub English or Japanese? <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. We're going to have to edit that out or leave it in. Make us look like idiots.